So welcome to this Ambit Radio Show beaming from Soho Radio Studios the day before Halloween 2021. I'm Kirsty Allison, the third editor of Ambit, the quarterly founded by Dr. Martin Bax back in 1959. Past editors include the poet Bryony Bax, related to Martin only by marriage, and notably Carol Ann Duffy, Eduardo Palozzi, Jeff Nicholson and J.G. Ballard, to name a few. It's an honour to continue their legacy in publishing the finest work available and as a righteous witch, I love Halloween for it ties to the ancient seasons and practices of long-gone folk. We've got pumpkins burning outside the studio and there are witches and wizards walking with the ghosts outside the windows here. They're going to be watched live in the studio today by the winners of the annual Ambit competitions for poems, stories and art. Back in the summer, we opened up the competition and received thousands of submissions. They've been diligently read by all the masthead of Ambit and our incredible judges this year, Kim Adonizio, who I had the pleasure of speaking with on the past show, and Michael Salou in the one before. In the magazine that celebrates all of the commended creators and the winners, it's a bumper-pop edition of 80 pages, beautifully designed by Stephen Barrett. And we're also going to feature interviews exclusively with work by both judges. So, And there's interviews in there too. So this new Ambit Pop our, is our 245th issue, and it drops on November the 10th at London Fields Brewery in London and hopefully through subscribers' letterboxes across the globe slightly in advance. So you can read along to the live transmission of the event if you're unable to attend. Details are on our website. And all the work takes a theme of the issue and their entries, which is metamorphosis, this issue. This theme came up in an editorial meeting and seemed right for the general era, but also as Bryony Back steps back to be editor emeritus. We're going to hear from the first, second, and third prize artists, writers, and poets today. They're going to be reading their work, and we're going to hear about their processes, their practice, and all their own lives metamorphosizing continuously as recorders of the more sentient aspects of life that can't necessarily transfer into being simply data. So we publish that on paper. You can subscribe for £30 plus post and packaging or £20 for a digital subscription. All the details are online. So later in the show, we're going to be speaking with one of the most understated British players in poetry, certainly in London, and we're speaking to him about his amazing new collection of kind of writing that he created in lockdown. That's the poet, librarian, curator and author, Chris McCarb. I'm sure, like most writers, he carries other titles too, father, academic, and many more. But he wrote a book which is being published by Penned in the Margins today, one of the great independent publishers in the UK and in celebration of Halloween it's called Buried Garden which explores the lost poets of cemeteries by way of Marky Smith and Stoke Newington so I'm looking forward to hearing from him but first I'd like to introduce Edward Hoffman who's dialing in directly from Amsterdam and he wrote an amazing piece that kind of won the heart of everybody who read it and it's called Oak Peg, 
Edward, can you hear us? I can now, thank you. Hi. That's wonderful. So in your bio, it says that you're a part-time teacher of English and you happen to be in Amsterdam right now. So I don't know if you want to fill us in with what's going on. Uh, it's uh, half term, so we're here visiting um, some family. I'm here with my kids. They've gone off on a train. I've literally landed about an hour ago, spent an hour in passport control, enjoying the fruits of Brexit by extended queues. Um, so, we're, yeah, I'm here now. I'm sitting outside the airport. So, apologies if you hear sort of plane noises and things going overhead. That's why. No, that's beautiful. It's really good to see you on Zoom as well, so I can kind of see your face in Amsterdam at, a, at an airport too. So, yeah, thanks for making the effort to do this. So, would you like to read your piece? Are you ready to do that? Are you? Yeah, I could do that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, tell us about it as well, maybe after, but just, yeah, perhaps if we just hear it to begin with. Sure. Okay, so the story's called Oak Peg. He curled his fingers around the bark and gave it little tugs to test if it would peel away in his hands. You see, he told himself, branches are secure, but bark is treacherous. I know this tree. There was always that point between root and bough where you were just a little too high to do anything about it if you fell, where you had to commit to the climb, put your trust in the tree and push through to safety. With a surge of relief, he swung himself into the oak tree's coaxing arms and lay upon the thickest branch, enjoying the sensation of wood beneath his body. If someone were to glance into the canopy, they would see only the breadth of the bottom of the branch. It was invisible. Good. Very good indeed. He and the tree were one. The girl would come with her dog, sit beneath the oak and read. He, invisible, a branch of the tree, could look down at her and push himself into the wood. Now he need only wait. Perhaps it was the way the light fluttered through the leaves, or the way he had twisted his body, but something caught his eye. There was silver in the oak. Strange how he had never noticed it before. He ran a finger along the edge. Smooth. It could be a forester's tag that had been absorbed in that strange, fleshy way that trees mould themselves around fence posts or railings, or anything that is left alone for too long. He'd once seen the rusted shell of a bicycle that had been swallowed by a pine. Or perhaps the silver thing had been dropped by someone eons ago, and the branches had caught it, and over a hundred years or more had carried it skywards, caught it in the slow fountain of the oak tree's growth. He tried to pinch it with his fingers. He scratched at the bark with his fingernails. He took off his belt and was about to chisel at it with a buckle when the skittish movements of a black dog made his heart leap in that wonderfully familiar way. He felt his breathing close and impatient upon the tree. Soon, the girl would appear beneath, soothing the dog with strange, babyish words. He withdrew his body onto the branch. He waited for the rustling at the base of the tree to stop. She would have her book open on her lap, skirt hitched above her knees, arms half bare, golden hair brushing across soft, brushed skin. He burned at the thought. He placed his hand on the bark, and imagined he could hear the beat of her heart resonating through the tree. He felt the pulse running from her to him through the stiff roots of the green crown of the oak tree. He leaned a little over the branch and looked down. Her face was upturned towards the canopy and her eyes locked his. Beginning at his extremities, like the slow brush of cold hands, he became horribly aware of every corner of his body. Before, he had been eyes, groin and beating heart, but now he has fingers and toes, eyes and ears, 
ribs and rectum. He felt himself seen, felt everything tighten and contract into a knot. He withdrew his face. He would climb. He would climb into the highest branches of the tree, and there he would wait for her to leave. He made to move, but something held his leg. He pulled his torso over the branch and tried to spin himself around to see. Something held his other leg. By pushing himself up onto his arms and by craning his neck, he could see his feet, or at least where his feet ought to have been. His toes vanished into the tree. Only his outer ankles and the heels of his shoe remained, bark surrounding the rest, as though the wood was syrup. He tried to pull his legs free, but however much he wriggled and squirmed, he could not make the slightest bit of difference to the oak tree's hold on him. He tried pushing himself to kneeling, to at least get his body away from the branch. When he failed to move, he turned to his hands and saw, with a wave of nausea, saw only wrists. His hands were in the tree. He pulled fiercely away, almost dislocating his shoulders. If only he could be free of his hands and his feet. The tree did not hurt him. Centuries of fibers and knots wrapped themselves around his limbs and held him as firmly as a mother, as hard as oak. He was sinking down, down into the entrails of the tree. The tree would not let him go. He knew this tree. He called out a dull wooden cry. The oak tree shivered in the wind and his voice was swallowed by the rustle of the leaves. His face was against the bark. He tasted yellow lichen in the back of his tongue and pollen at the top of his nostrils. A silver beetle crawled from the branch onto his chin, across his cheek, and returned to the branch. His mouth was in the tree. He breathed in good fibres. Before his last eye sank into the oak, he saw the silver object anew. On the underside, a small indentation reached halfway across the metal. It was a belt buckle. Sunlight fluttered through leaves and fresh acorns. A dog barked at a tree. Thank you so much, Ed. Um, so everybody can read that piece, uh, your new work in the new issue, but could you tell us about it? I mean, for, honestly, it took me a few reads to, to get it, but that might just be that I'm a bit dense. But yeah, it was really, um, it's, it's kind of, you mix the pastoral and the story in a way that I hadn't seen before. So that's what I liked about it. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, well, it sort of came from that. I guess from the inspirational metamorphosis, it was trying to sort of blend various mythologies together. Um, I feel like I take a lot of what I write from what I'm teaching at the time. As I'm a teacher, I was teaching bits of Ovid, I was teaching The Tempest. Um, so I sort of tried to bring in that idea of uh, Apollo and Daphne um, and the transformation of Daphne into a laurel, but then kind of switched around the genders. And then the title Oak Peg comes from. Um, the Tempest, where Mossboro threatens to uh, peg um, Ariel in the knotty entrails of an oak. Um, and then I've also been doing a bit of, <laughs> I see it really does bring in all this sort of teaching stuff that I do at the time. I was also teaching a bit of existentialism to my uh, lower sixth group at the time, and teaching Sartre, and uh, we were reading a little bits of La Nausée. Lucky students, um, eh? Yeah. <laughs> And the idea of being seen and transformed by being seen. Um, so there's that moment where he is in a sort of position of power, he's hidden, and then he looks down and sees the person who is watching, seeing him. And that's the moment of transformation for me. 
um, that that turn of the story. Yeah, that was the kind of pastoral bit that I liked of it that I couldn't twig into to to begin with. But yeah, I think it's super super clever what you've done. So you so do you find that a lot with what you write? Do you get much time to write when teaching, or how does it? Well, yeah, yeah. As I said, I'm part time, so okay. I, I work I work fifty percent. So I've always got like a little bit of time set aside each week to do some writing, but it is. Uh, very much in snippets. I've got two kids as well, so um, it's where I can find the find the moments. But I definitely find the teaching is not a it's not a hindrance. It's definitely sure. an inspiration inspiration to the writing. And what and what are you working on right now? Um, so I'm working on another short story um, called Six Clicks, um, which is uh, about uh, a sort of um, I guess the mythology of um, being six clicks away from a beheading on YouTube um, <laughs> and try to sort of bring that. Imagine if you were sort of six clicks away from something in the real world. So that sort of movement um, from digital to reality and also working on a longer piece um, called Square and Stable Earth, which is uh, sort of partly about that earth conspiracy theory, but all about friendship. I was reading something from the 18th, well, it's actually from the 19th century about the flattened earth yesterday. It's kind of heralded as being one of the first sci-fi stories. But yes. Yeah. Yeah, I well, that's, it, yeah. That, I mean, there's some really interesting old conspiracy theories around it as well, or theories about the flattened earth and these, you get these beautifully rendered maps of the earth imagined as though it were not the shape that it is. Um, and they're sort of gorgeous objects to look at as well. And this idea that it's square at a certain mm. time, sort of people thought there's sort of square shape to it, which is um, beautiful. Yeah, we're so visually informed on our understanding of 2D and 3D now, aren't we? It's kind of, and what the visual is, because it's such a shared experience. But I guess kind of words continue to play with those ambiguities, really. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Are you going to stay on the line whilst we hear from Absolutely. the second yeah, I can do. prize? Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you. That's great. Um, so, we're going to hear from Luke Jackson now and Hello. Luke hey Luke you're calling in from Bournemouth right I am I am yeah how are you going you okay I'm very well yeah yeah excellent I I mean I've got a biog here for you that um, oh yeah explains that's one that we publish in in Ambit and mm. I don't know if you'd like to read that if we should ask Roland in the studio to read it or kind of what we what we do to um, to explain your process because it's a really experimental piece that Michael Salu selected as a second prize winner for our stories prize this year so yeah I, I found it incredible it really sprung out to me from oh thank you yeah yeah um, what should we do about your biog and explaining your work yeah, if, as, if you, or do you want to read your stuff first, Luke? Uh, uh, I suppose the uh, the biog situates with a context. If um, if uh, y y if you want to read that first, and then I can read the. Uh, okay, how very the, conceptual! The how very conceptual of you! Yeah, <laughs> it okay. does frame frame. It does frame the practice, I guess, uh, as as a as a, a way in. I think. Is this mic on, Giles? Can we just check if this one's on? Yeah, so if we ask... Um, oh, actually, yeah, why don't you come in here, Roland, and just read. So this is Roland, our glamorous editorial assistant who's uh, coming in there, who runs the set studio spaces in London that are really worth checking out. Good afternoon, Roland. Hey, good afternoon. I'm just going to read this for two seconds before I start reading it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, cool. This one. Thank you. Um, Sites of Horror is a fictioning research unit formed out of the debris of digital sites for the basis of fiction storytelling. It was formed in PPN circa 9,600 to 7,000 Cal BC, I guess calendar BC, with the recent examination on online sites and how these sites seize the individual from the inside. Its aim is to offer alternatives to the dominant fictions that construct our reality in our techno-feudalist age. The work produced is about online culture, disassembling the self, becomings, fiction, altered states, fact, dream and reality. This work is about the worlds between two social media accounts before complete techno-assimilation and the leaving behind of the self. Thank you, Roland. So thank, thank you. Sorry for putting you through that as well. That <laughs> <laughs> no, was great. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, your your work, it just kind of glitches through data. It's like a representation of glitching through identity and fragments of data. And it's quite futuristic and experimental. And I'm just all for it. So would you like to share some with us? Absolutely. Should I just uh, read the whole thing or just a, a section or... Mm. Should we see how long? It's quite long, isn't it? So I'm feeling it's, it's, like a... It's a thousand. So is I can it? Just, cool, we'll do I, that I'll, then. Yeah, I mean, do it. And we'll, we can always yeah. kind of cut you out, right? I can always say, no, that's enough. We've had enough of experimental fiction now, thanks. But yeah, called Welcome Kanye, is it not? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah? Absolutely. Should we see how it goes, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, OK. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Welcome Kanye. We love you. Across tomorrow, my, my AFK, self, worth, I, RL, is zero. I don't want to change. Why? The last time I saw, why I, I, I thought I'd found you. Thank you, everyone. It was late last night. I was in total isolation. My loneliness was painful. This is the summer of my discontent. Oh, no, I sent this. Am I right? I am here for you, Kay, come quick. Kay instructs the cab, it is dusk. Drive me to her. I am Y, you DM me. Can I change my body whilst waiting? An all-consumed emptiness, I wash over. Why, I kiss. The sound plays, nature fucking with me, unconditionally. She doesn't, she doesn't have to run a scam. I love her again. She is the reason why I will go insane. Moving objects around, this is the moment. I missed your post. Are you next to me? JSYK, that's a sign, right? About us? JK, ha ha. K awoke with a feeling of something missing. They wandered the streets before dawn, searching. Searching for something to feel less lonely. Twitch, I can't do it. Audio becomes a webcam. Flow CSL, stream CSL, ingest CSL, forever breathing for you. JSYK, you learn, you, you, you yearned. Awake next to me, the soil of past loved ones. I am smiling. You arose to see what I see. Vanished. You said TBH, stop. You came back to me. Rip it open. You appear, front. I am here for you. Don't leave. FBF. Kate felt he had seen her before. Existence seems so full of new possibilities. Rip, 1992, comes you. File, downloaded, taken, stored, deleted, looped, digital throwback. Gems mined, stored, returned, seen, waiting. 
the portal opened industrial park fremont california the beginning our future 90 401 773 we can't go home home is gone the world without repost received two 10.7 million followers sent instagram stories you wrote beeper choker dark lip adidas fat late fat laces you wrote beeper choker dark lip adidas fat laces you wrote beeper choker dark lip adidas fat laces what are you holding elr5 fr for real the pager you in 1080 x by a 1080 1.1 ratio page me gtfo 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 inhi silent generation our hands are working flow afa ik i click before it begins somewhere else discover me leather pants are tight the future is hidden sent 2029 a love letter in outline a world is waiting an early sighting its shape already mutating flesh and technology thigh and iphone nestled together waiting ready i was waiting inside the cyberline system model 101 for us beeper choker dark lip adidas fat laces the page of vibrates fr for real 607 607 607 you miss me but are you me just before this is me now i can't go back i am everywhere 90s throwback fbf key change replies btw probably the last time i ever saw you the last time i saw you in person gone where did you go when did you meet the csm 101 did you tell me what to do i was walking along beeper choker dark lip adidas fat laces i heard a noise down the alley the ground shook a crack and the cloud appeared. I can only explain it as a rip in the landscape. CSM 101 arose out of electrical currents, whipping the floor. I wanted to tell you before I couldn't. Please believe me, key change. I did. I do. I really do. But how do I know what to do? It told me everything. My pager. Message. Go to hell. CSM 101. You took my body and dissolved me. Reappear. February 20, 2012. My Instagram pic. Kisses for Instagram. I'm so sorry, key change. And know the nostalgia you feel for me. A condition behind the sun. What's to you? Alive. Grid me now. It is us. Keep clicking. Keep me alive. My iPhone, you, you inside. Me. It is hidden. See you behind our screens. I'm holding on to you. Somebody's knocking. I was just scrolling. One look. You joined. You appeared for real. Am I right? Mizen. Welcome, Kanye. I love you. I have a serious question. Miss N. Did you believe me? It is important to know. I didn't hurt you rising at last a voice forms reels and reels all this laughing should it take two heads to speak above the city for real you wear for real gf you tweet we are a sinking ship this is our relic of time cannibalism becomes an emoji i need a cannibalism emoji a thumb to a trigger finger accepts you kill and hate your makers fbf lion dormant eight thousand years and then you woke up hugs and kisses hugs and kisses hugs and kisses the ripples electrifying a clap the thundering of atoms hitting atoms particles emancipate reborn knocked out of the earth a new iron age zinc encased asap cosmos heavy it's 7 35 a.m Kay thinks this is a really lovely story about what it's meant to them both at i quit we begin again us we walk across the surface down a slope across a flat heavy we walk up to a small ridge we stand holding hands our love is infinite followers omg hand is sweaty in my nest i am forever seeing and sending i feel really crunchy a i r nothing 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 i'm here waiting for you to message me no dm for you i l u kim i move my eyes for you dear praise support i hope the world lasts for you I follow you. Beeper, choker, dark blue, Adidas, fat laces. Are interested in the world when it lie ago? Go back. It's important to talk. IACB.
So tell us, Luke, tell us, tell us, tell us about how that came to be. Uh, uh, so, so my practice is a, is, is, is a practice. So I see writing as a, as a method of, uh, of this uh, form of uh, uh, creating work out of uh, uh, what's uh, you'd say kind of like the kind of the feeds of, of digital life. And um, so I came across initially, I, I like to keep a certain like mystery around the, the, the eventual outcome of the fictional work, but like the, the, uh, the structure kind of involves the, 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 the initially it's, uh, as, as points of access going into it um it was the the first kind of posts uh, that uh, Kanye West done in which he uh, there was a um an image of um from the film Total Recall and then uh, there was uh, so that the the stories then build around some of the comments that were then placed next to it. And then that was the kind of the way in for the story to build. Um, and so, so yeah, so really the, the work then started to kind of um, grow out of that really. And then this relationship between the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the accounts, then uh, um, Kim Kardashian done a 90s throwback uh, post and, and then this, this repetition of, uh, of, of the two uh in in some sort of kind of like uh, uh, kind of time kind of like ontological time loop uh, uh conversation perhaps but the, but but these are the kind of the digitized fictitious uh character characters of 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 that exist within uh the 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 kind of the the online realities instead of reality and such um, yeah does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I just hope we're not up for a libel there. But yeah, it's um yeah, it's a, it's a really uh interesting practice. And I'd like to come back to talk about it collectively with Georgina Parfit, who I'm gonna introduce shortly, and Edward mm. Hoffman and yourself, and just kind of discuss kind of how far we push ourselves as writers and how far we do kind of edit and play around with the form and, and what the form of writing is. Is it simple communication or, or can it rese- uh, represent conceptually like yours does too? Um, so you're doing a doctorate in form. Uh, uh, yeah, so really, uh, the, the work is centred. Um, so, Sites of Horror is this kind of construction, this uh, fictional research unit, and um, so it really looks at uh, the field of research that I'm particularly interested in is is this kind of concept of fiction in, where fiction is is, is verbs essentially. And um, the most recent up-to-date work on this is is the work done by um, David Burroughs and Simon O'Sullivan with their book. Um, uh, fiction in and uh, com- uh, functions the myth functions of contemporary art and philosophy that um, really kind of frames the potentials of um, of uh, fiction in as uh, as this uh, this kind of mode of operation um, and uh, the, the the practice then of of writing uh, imagining performing the cut up uh, uh, this process of I suppose if you were to just kind of widen pan out uh, 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 into kind of like continental philosophy. It's got its roots, say, within kind of like Deleuze and Guattari, the kind of schizoanalysis of practice. So the kind of the rupturing, the assemblage, thinking of things like the rise of matic and, uh, and then as, uh, this relates to digital networks of communicative culture 
and um, how then stories are kind of written out of that. So I'm particularly interested in um, platforms, platforms that are in some way. Uh, 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 so with with writing, it's um, that's why it's more kind of uh, it centres around this the, 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 this fiction. Uh, so say like the screenplay. Um, so the research looks at a, a text by Pasolini, where the, the structure of the screenplay that, that uh, wants to be another structure, potentially. So the screenplay exists in this prior structure and how this then relates to the uh, 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 kind of form of techniques and platforms that are kind of serve the, 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 this kind of almost um, heterotopic space. Uh, where it's this in between us. Yeah, I've read his St. Paulus piece. Is it St. Paul or St. Paulus um, screenplay thing that kind of plays into all of those ideas? From yeah, yeah. So it's really the the potentials of uh, the like the the open structure, mm. and then how, how how the structure remains open. What the potentials uh, and how how my research focuses on that in relation to. Uh, the open structure that I that that, that uh, these technologies have, and then how you can sit with how creativity uh, is, is 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 in some way a form of um, uh, 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 an intervention to the. It's a the, subjugation uh, of some form, no? Is that what you mean, or not? Yeah, I suppose. Well, but how how then the the, the practice works within um, uh, kind of uh, an intervention to the kind of the state fictions, the social bodies mm. that um, are, are the realities, and so fiction as method as 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 world building and realities, unrealities that then become realities, and this this the the, the, the kind of collapse of uh, subjectivity through uh, what we kind of arguably kind of like the hyper real so to say these these elements that then become like the the residualness that leaks into reality daily life and then the cognitive cognitive collective cognitiveness of of what you'd call kind of like contemporary society the kind of like i suppose what you call kind of late capitalist or arguably let's say something like Mackenzie walk talks about as kind of vectorialist sort of like uh you know is you know that book that, that's a very good book um uh you know uh, uh, uh is this something worse uh, the the last book Mackenzie walk wrote um is capital dead is this something worse and so so a lot of the stuff that's kind of like um Percolates around sort of like digital technologies, and the, but the good so so the work tries to kind of like um, flow through that. So flows are really important, but for it not to then just to be shaped through. So the kind of the overall project that I'm working at the moment would be much more kind of it, it, it's like a how kind of like a a lot of kind of technical determinism is shaped by a kind of like a a, a kind of a. Kind of, pop cultural kind of like or a kind of like a, a cultural idea of science fiction that always things are always kind of shaped very much by a um uh it's quite spiky in a way so that's but so so what's so, so interesting more in a kind of like these sort of nuances things flows and um and uh i'm not uh, rambling too much am i no no i'm just thinking it's like looking for meaning and spam you know, as a simple way of kind of explaining it. And I think we've got a, 
hereditary kind of culture of that within Ambit with the Invisible Years that was the collaboration between Bax and J.G. Ballard that kind of cut stuff up in, in all sorts of different ways looking for meaning. So I guess that's the legacy and why I like what you're doing but let's hear from our super super mega mega big prize 500 quid winner uh georgina parfait i mean the rest of you have got cash prizes as well which i'm looking forward to presenting at the amber awards on the 10th of november at london fields brewery but georgina let's hi. hi thanks for can you hear me yeah you've got okay. a great voice we love your oh, voice thanks. yeah so, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Georgina. Um, what do you want to know, first of all? So, you're writing. Tell us about... So, you're, you're currently... Where are you living? You're in Liverpool. I'm in Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Liverpool. Um, and you might hear, as I go on, you might hear my sweet five-year-old neighbour, Barbara, um, playing outside she's like tricycling outside so you might hear her but I think that's fine <laughs> <laughs> and and you're working writing in Liverpool I'm writing and I'm teaching so I'm sort of half and half yeah yeah and I, I like that mix as does Edward yeah yeah mr edward hoffman as well so good uh great so would you like to your piece is quite short and uh yeah, yeah i mean it won the hearts of everyone who read it so Aww. yeah uh so many 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 congratulations on being the big prize winner of the stories Thank annual Olympic competition let's hear it it's cool do you want to are you going to introduce the title i'll just say the title i guess okay. yeah okay To the cow, the trees. Something has the people's attention. For a moment, the sun over the village stops. Brand new light slides over the flint roof. The field turns. A shudder of life takes cow and leads her towards the trees. To the cow, the trees are living. They are the most moving thing. They make her eyes wonder. Otherwise, she looks down or gazes nothingly at the boundary. But now that the boundary has been breached, the trees move and she follows. There is water in the trough still, but it is still and blank green. The trees are endless water. They are telling her everything she needs to know. Her backbones shift and the meat of them presses down around her shoulders. Her whole neck and ears are numb. She is older than she was before. She was lighter and now she is heavier. She was milk and now she's bone. She crosses the boundary like it's nothing and is out the other side where tracks snake from the village. A ridge of fat grass, a furrow of cracked earth, all cinched to a ditch which holds these bits of the world together. To the cow, the ditch speaks. Its gasping voice reveals nothing, just a smell, a slick smell of leaves frosted and dissolved. There had been another smell before, her woman smell with felt hands and tiny sniffing nose she sometimes pushed coldly into cow cow's forehead. That one is long gone, flapped away with one flag of the wind. Cow doesn't miss anything. Everything she loves is either gone or right here. 
her hooves tip in towards the water, her line swerves. Something wants her to fall. Her sides are heavy as sails, they lean. She finds her voice or her voice finds her again and pains the air with one long groan. Her hooves trip towards the ditch. She drops and her rocked knees crash into the water. Cold, old water rises to meet her. She remembers it. This is her water. She began here or she ends here. Either way, this is where she ought to be. The cold is complete. It is not a question. So she sinks down and lets her lowing go. To the trees, the sound is a bird. Another warm thing clinging like a clot to their soft branches. Light billows. The hedgerow is full of nests. Everything is rattling, shuffling, with life trying to make home. Something has the people's attention. That's beautiful. I, I'd like to read what the judge, Michael Salu, said of your work. So he said, uh, when writing is good, it writes us. I love the earthy evocation in Georgina's story, in which words metamorphose in textures, smells and sounds of the living earth and a sense of experiencing and feeling what it is to live when we let go of the duress of time. Very nice. Uh, very nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's like my best part of the job so far is being calling you to let you know that. Um, to say nice yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a nice thing, to, nice thing to do. So tell us a bit about your practice, Georgina, and what you're working on right now and what you're doing. So I'm working on um, a collection of stories or a series of stories. So this, um, this little story... Um, actually takes part in in a bigger in like a village of of short stories, um, and this is one of the smaller ones. Uh, so I'm I'm figuring those out right now. I'm writing them, um, and it's a bit like you know it might be one of those sets of stories with a map at the beginning. It's that kind of um, I'm thinking about it as a place really. Um, so I'm sort of trying to create this village, um, and I'm thinking about. I grew up in in a rural place in a in a in a small village. Um, uh, spent a lot of time kind of wandering around <laughs> fields and. Where was that? Where's um, your accent from? It's really. So I was I was I was born in Norfolk. I, I grew up in Norfolk, um, and then I was in the U.S. from 18 through my 20s. So it's a mix a mix of those two things, maybe. Mm, okay. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, that sounds amazing. Like invisible cities and so much psychogeography that yeah. Jeff Nicholson yeah. is such a good, good fan of. So yeah, sounds it sounds beautiful, kind of conceptual idea on the on the on the cusp of what Luke does. Can we have a little conversation yeah. about that, Luke and, and Ed as well? Would you like to come in and talk about? Can just have a conversation amid yourselves and ask each other any questions that you may have. You know that when you were t when you were talking, Luke, that um, that phrase "digital networks." I think it was mm. "digital networks of communicative culture." Oh yeah, is what you said. And I, even though my my these village stories, including this cow, mm. um, 
they're, I mean, they're not, I'm not bringing digital stuff in really to them at all or very much. Um, but that phrase really um, spoke to me. And I think in trying to write a village or a rural kind of isolated community in sort of now, it is, it is like that. It is like a digital network of communicative culture in a, in a way. I'm like trying to, um, that it, it's still, it's still true, even though I'm not, I'm not thinking about the internet. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's, uh, that, yeah, it's a very interesting area. Like, um, like, uh, technology and like rural, rurality as well is, yeah. uh, um, um, I think an area that, uh, is often now like, um, uh, uh, looked at there's um there's 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 a good book actually um uh, 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 that talks about kind of like the rurality of kind of the ontological um, wandering through spectral fields I think it's okay. called and um and how the, the, this sense of the relationship to um, um how we perceive the landscape especially the, the sort of like British landscape. Uh, is 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 a work of fiction in itself as well. Mm -hmm. That um, through, especially through like the kind of the, 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 the from the nineteenth to the twentieth century, how how uh, kind of like the society kind of fictionalised itself through uh, through through kind of like how it's stitched culturally is is, mm -hmm. is an interesting. Um, um, way of them perceiving um, the, the, the kind of the landscape and, uh, and now that um, especially that uh, um, that sense of the, the, the sense of almost kind of like deeper paths that, uh, that really can conjure that when you when you look at the landscape via the lens now of, of, of so say what even you you know as you're talking there it's like this idea of digital psychogeography, isn't it, I guess, yeah, in a yeah. sense of what you're talking about. You know, our former editor, Fiction, who uh, Kate Pemberton took over from, uh, Jeff, he's written some great books on psychogeography and kind of collaborated with Will Self and all kinds of people. But I'd really recommend yeah. his History of Walking, his first one, The Art of Walking or something. Mm. And it's, something it's awesome. yeah, it's great. Yeah. There's something also like I wouldn't have said this without hearing the wider context, Georgina. But um, when you told me about the village uh, idea, there's something sort of almost like Dylan Thomasy about it, about under milk wood, the the sort of um, intense interiority you get of. I mean, your character in this one is the cow, and you've achieved in that story something which I've always tried to achieve, which I've never successfully managed to do, which is sort of to write really viscerally from the perspective of an animal, and I think that's an incredibly hard thing to do there's some beautiful phrases in that that just take you into that body the sort of the meat of them pushes down on her shoulders is such a vivid phrase that could only come from that animal and i think you've worked um yeah, some extraordinary magic with that. It can always sound like such a stilted creative writing exercise, can't it? Personifying mm, different yeah. things. So yeah, I think it's pretty seamless, really. Yeah, yeah. And really hard nice, to do well. Dylan Thomas. Uh, yeah, allegiance love that. There. I love yeah. Under Milk Wood. So good. Yeah. Um, cool. So, so I mean, have you got any questions for one another about kind of different 
different elements of metamorphosis perhaps as creatives and artists and kind of what journeys you've been on personally before getting I mean what does this mean to you getting an award with Ambit I feel like I was thinking today about um this idea of metamorphosis but also um it being Halloween and I was <laughs> kind of pleased that we that you chose to sort of have that be part of the theme because um there is something spooky sometimes I realize that there is something spooky about a writer <laughs> especially like you know as a as a kid I felt a little bit spooky being a you know little girl with with a book I felt that a little bit um so it's nice to kind of acknowledge that spookiness and I think also thinking about metamorphosis there's a witchiness maybe as well and the idea of kind of putting things together, um, adding things together to, to make some kind of story in a way that's a little bit like, you know, it's a little bit alchemy. It's a little bit putting things in a cauldron. <laughs> um, I completely agree with that. Um, and I, I keep on harking back to this, but it's one of the sort of teaching exercises I do is I get my students to, to write in real time as I'm developing a story. So I'll sort of say, okay, I want you to Think of a character, you write down that character's name now, make them go and do something. Okay, they're picking something up. What is that thing they're picking up? And now they're meeting someone else, they're seeing them, they say something to them, what is the thing they're saying? And then they take a moment to look back over the story. I realize that from a blank page, they've conjured nothing. They've, sorry, from nothing, from the blank page, they've conjured something, yeah. they've conjured the character, and the character is obeying them and doing what they say and is not. Um, yeah, there is something magical about that. And we often talk about that in terms of sort of meta uh, narratives as well, in terms of like a character who is within a story, but also uh, constructing the story at the same time. Mm. And it's such an internal thing, but then all of a sudden you're here talking to other people about it. <laughs> yes. So it, it's so nice when that thing becomes um, part real. of yeah, your outside life kind of how this award may help you in terms of publishing and kind of what it means to get prizes because I mean the whole idea of being in competition for any art seems quite ludicrous a lot of the time when all we're doing is showing ideas you know so yeah I just kind of wondered you know for you kind of how whether it's an affirmation or kind of an advice or or you know, it is a, I guess it's a, a stripe on your cockroach shell, really, you know, as an artist, but yeah. For me, it was very much, it was very much that. Like, in fact, when you gave me the call, I was, I'd, I'd literally just stepped out of a coffee shop where I was doing some writing and feeling really bad about it. And just feeling like, oh God, like this isn't going anywhere. This isn't working. I'm never gonna like make anything of this. And then you've got, I got that call from you. And it was just exactly at the right moment, the, affirmation as you said that I needed at that time and yeah just went back and kept on going so it's a, a really great well-timed phone call <laughs> good glad to be of service and and Luke what about you how does this kind of work for you oh absolutely uh, as, uh, as Edward was saying that, that when I received the phone call it was um, uh, especially with what I do um, in that um, it's uh, it's really appreciated to be uh, welcomed uh, into a 
publication like the, the Ambit uh, way of work that uh, I suppose you know it's 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 um, uh, a lot of, a lot of what I do is is is, is so far not been uh, seen. Um, so to then um, have have this uh, opportunity has is, 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 is been really um, a, a real real kind of um, a confidence boost in um, continuing with the development of this as a practice method. Um, even today, speaking and reading um, and sharing uh, with with you has been a, a, a real real again. Um, Real experience, positive experience, and uh, really, really appreciated for that. Uh, Solidarity in a lot of ways getting published, I think, particularly in something with Ambit. I remember when I was first published in 2007, that it just gave me a feeling that it was it was okay, you know, and I found a new family with it. And if I can offer that to anyone getting published in Ambit, that'd be great, you know. So, uh, right. Georgina, do you want to tell us just a little bit about what it means to you to be the first prize winner of stories for the Amber annual competition with the theme of metamorphosis? Oh, it means so much. Um, I was firstly, I was so excited to like Ed, I was so excited to get the call. I was really um, shaky excited. Um, and also just, yeah, the confidence boost thing. I had been writing stories recently. I'd been writing stories that um, I was trying to make sort of, I'm just, I was trying to make publishable. I was trying to make them readable and likable. <laughs> um, and, and then I had the cow story and I almost didn't send it because I felt that it was a little too strange and it, I wasn't sure that it was a story um, that people would like. <laughs> so it just, it gave, it gave me a confidence boost in that way um, in a way that I now feel more decisive about those stranger stories that I like best. Um, and so it tells me that I, that's what I should be writing rather than trying to, trying to be likable. Trying to be a commercial yeah. fiction writer. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Follow your heart, it'll get us everywhere, right? Yeah. So, um, so what we have now is we have an errant poet unusually uh we have the third prize winner are you happy to stay on the line ed ed are you i mean you're in amsterdam airport are you happy to, to... i'm very comfortable i'm very comfortable yeah I'm excellent fine. <laughs> brilliant and luke and georgina are you happy to stay on the line just because i think we're going to bridge now into some poetry winners and roland is going to win our errant poet who seems to have changed his mobile and his email and I've been trying to get hold of him on Twitter too so yeah we're just going to share that winning edition now by this is going to be expertly read again by Roland Roland oh, I think I'm through here. Um, so this is E this is E Walker's Deus Ex Cochlea it started out innocently enough, my cousin and I, in a garden unkempt and full of promise, making mud pies in clay pots with soil and puddle water and worms, decided on more exotic ingredients, took bricks to shells, to hauled brittle shells, grey mucus, living yolks, beating, squirming, forgot about pies, took bricks to snail after snail after snail with pleasure, with abandon, 
with unrelenting, unrivaled power. Our mothers and their mother clocked us through the window, screamed us, stopped us, came out and put the fear of God in us. Through tears and terror, we learnt with genuine agony of all our father's creatures, great and small, of the horrific slimy hearts on our tiny terracotta hands. Thank you very much, Ryland, for that work by E. Walker, which you can read. Sometimes poetry is better read off the page, obviously, but sometimes it works well in both both spheres, as we just heard. So uh, as far as I know, E. Walker lives in Manchester with Petal, his Chilean rose tarantula. Yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> and and Kim Adonizio, who we're really honoured to have had as our judge, she absolutely adores Sarah Gibbons' piece and put it in second place. And it's called Things Hang Well on Me Now. I'm so beautifully sad. And we're very lucky to have Sarah Gibbons in the studio right now. Would you like to come and read and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about why we're here today? Yeah, sure. Hello. Um, yeah, so I'm Sarah Gibbons. Um, would you like me to read first or talk? Or? Do, you think, do you think that conceptual context is required before or would you like to put your art first? I think I'm going to put my art first and give it a go. Okay. Right. Things hang well on me. Now I am so beautifully sad. Your brain has given you up to the machines. A half-life of wires and tubes that shuttle the air through your lungs. In a stale, hot room, decisions are exhaled. A body must be shared out in small, hopeful packages. And what to do with the corneas of your wide, brown eyes. But I am inattentive. There is a line of sunlight around the door frame. Its blurred rectangle shines onto the resin floor. I step through it and out of the room, into a wardrobe, into a scoop-backed dress of black silk, to a party held at a rare altitude. I am in love with the depression between each rib, with shallow exhalations white lines and a man I've just met who runs his hands over my various sorrows. I wake one morning when the light through a Venetian blind scores the floorboards of a strange room, its terracets of discarded clothes. The air has thickened overnight. I wonder about the corneas, something near me Recording in progress. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks. Thanks, Zoom, for reminding us that we're recording <laughs> live here. We love you. So, Sarah Gibbons, tell us a bit about that. Um, well, I mean, poetry should speak for itself, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah, it should. Yeah, I guess. Um, but I guess people could also get things out of it at different levels of different levels of understanding um so it's, it's an odd poem i mean it is based um broadly on quite a personal experience but the way in which it sort of came about was quite quite interesting and not necessarily my typical process so i started 
making loads of notes and I got obsessed with white lines and and I was trying to say something about grief really um, and think about the taboos around grief and how you respond to bereavement um, and I guess I was thinking there's sort of there's a lot of focus and value in dignity in grief and I don't think grief necessarily has to be a dignified process um, and I was interested in this idea of disembodiment as well so I had this sort of contrast of the body that is being effectively repurposed. But then if you're the living one, what do you then do with your body? How do you then express your grief and your rage and everything else? And sort of playing through that. But but I wanted the poem to work on, on two levels as well. So I wanted people to read it potentially as someone literally stepping out and doing these things or possibly just doing it in a in a psychological way so they're still in the room. So that's what I was trying to achieve. Um, but that makes it sound a bit more clinical than it than the process actually was, in a way. Have you read Kitchen by Banana Yoshimoto? Have you no, I haven't oh, actually. So beautiful as a uh-huh. as a short story mm-hmm. on grief. And it's just about the recovery more, but yeah, it's it's a beautiful oh I'll, I'll beautiful check that study out yeah because I think yeah. it, I think it's a really interesting and topic. I mean, it's not something that no one's ever written about. I mean, I love the poem by um, Tess Gallagher as well, Black Silk, mm. um, which sort of focuses on just this leftover garment and what you her do name keeps well. on coming up for me at the moment. Oh yeah, yeah, she's yeah, yeah she's pretty incredible actually. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. So I mean, did you? Did you write a brief for Metamorphosis? Did you see, or is it something that you've been working on already? Or? No, I didn't write to brief, but when I saw the competition and that the theme was Metamorphosis, I looked across a lot of my poems and realised that this was actually quite a recurrence, actually. Um, I think partly because I often write about the body and the body changing. Um, and not so much in this poem, but in other poems, I have quite probably quite um, quite a gothic sentiment, actually. Happy Halloween, kids! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got lots of poems at the moment which are responses to, um, uh, to quite traditional folk songs where terrible things happen to, to, usually to women, you know. I mean, they're all songs that are in a minor key and have got a murder in, basically. Um, and then thinking about... Uh, giving a voice back to the women in those songs. But then you end up getting into quite the nitty-gritty of decomposition and transformation and, and things like that. So it's something that appeals to me quite a lot, actually. And, and obviously there's that whole sort of history of people writing um, based on the Greek myths, and you think of things like the Daphne myth and all those things. So it, it's, I think it's something that's actually quite ingrained in the human psyche in a way. Um, and a way of trying to understand big psychological moments and psychological adaptations as well. So I find it really interesting and appealing. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, my good. And then I was like, oh, it's Kim Adonitsu as well, <laughs> who, I, who I absolutely adore. She loves your stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's. In, I was wondering before this whether or not all poets and writers are naturally gothic. Maybe. If there is an existential quest, <laughs> an explanation, and there is a verge towards that darkness, I was kind of, mm. I was just thinking about all my mm-hmm. favourites. So I was like, mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I often think poetry is about getting into a hinterland, getting into your own hinterland and trying to walk through it. And I guess that's a lot about darkness, um, usually your own darkness, and trying to work through your own darkness and put it in a place where it's, manageable and preferably not going to hurt anyone but 
Um, whether all poets in history have been successful at that, at that is, a, is another question, basically. I mean, um, it's interesting the way that it's kind of got iconographed by film too uh-huh, as yeah. a concept mm-hmm. and where our imagery now mm-hmm. comes from film as a horror Halloween imagery. Yeah. Then mm-hmm. that's quite interesting. I watched The Lighthouse last night and it was kind of, I don't know if you've seen it, William mm-hmm. Defoe, but it's like, I think they've used The Painted Bird, which is a brilliant book, yeah. but also an incredible, incredible mm-hmm. film that just keeps on pushing through chapters and chapters. It's uh-huh. never ending pain. And yeah, those things, they just, it's kind of this embrace of the darkness that art does brilliantly when, and, and, you know, the best do it. Yeah, and I think you have the, you have the opportunity to do that. You can make it into a space where you can do that. And I think that it's definitely personally useful and, may, and I think maybe socially useful as well, I think. Um, so it is, it is something I come back to again and again, actually. Mm, brilliant so what are you working on now um so i'm working on quite a few things i'm your biog is insane i mean it's just (laughs) like (laughs) it's like oh my gosh children running like really high pressure everything Yeah, yeah 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 i tend to fill up the corners quite a lot yeah i sometimes feel like i'm just wringing out this dishcloth of time to try and squeeze a couple of extra minutes out but yeah yeah there's quite a lot that's happening um i'm really interested in um in witchcraft at the moment actually Not oh you should check out zoe house <laughs> check out zoe house show on oh. on soho radio oh i definitely will yeah. she she's she uh-huh. does a witchcraft show she's brilliant <gasps> oh yeah. amazing yeah. yeah so i've got a bit obsessed with um a woman called isabel gowdy who um there are actually records of her confessions of witchcraft um uh, which were recorded and recorded very faithfully. And and as creative documents, they're really interesting. Um, so I'm looking at that and trying to do something with that at the moment, but I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it. Um, but again, I'm quite interested in that you have this sort of surge in witchcraft that's linked specifically to diabolism in the 17th century, in, in Scotland mainly, but in other parts of Europe as well. Um, and these women who had terribly hard lives, um, which from a domestic point of view, just must have been absolutely unbearable compared to um, how we experience life today. And some of them definitely did get into this sort of, into diabolism as a way of escaping that. And it's quite interesting. And you have all the religious changes around, around this time as well. So I'm going to try and do something like with, with that, but I think it might be quite a long project because I really want to do it justice. So Sarah we'll Sparks is really interesting uh-huh. as a, an artist as well uh-huh. who plays with a ghost story as a <laughs> concept, and she's worth checking out. Definitely. Oh, I'll definitely look that. at that. Yeah, and it's mainly feminist perspective of uh-huh. witchcraft, obviously too. So, yeah, good good interesting stuff. But so, I just wanted to play in a bit because we've got uh, Laurie. Uh, Ogden, our super, super £500 winner, is... Loved her poem when I read it in proof. I thought it's amazing. So. Yeah, <laughs> it is amazing. It's at the press right now and zooming out of the mm-hmm. print. Um, but, yeah, she's on her way. She's a busy, busy person too. So, yeah, we'll hear from her shortly. But now we're going to take a trip through the Halloween power of my radio broomstick down to Islington for the Blang Records event at the Hope and Anchor, who have a film playing at the Dock and Roll Film Festival, which is playing online at a screen very near you. And I slipped off down, down, down to a dark, 
bench where I got a bit glimmered by the occultist, poet and goth expert, Chris McCabe. My name may well be derived from the macabre and I've got a huge fascination in the macabre, hence this book. Nice. Yeah. So your book, Penned in the Margins. Yeah. Nice publisher. Yeah, great. Yeah. And tell us about it. What's it called? Yep. So it's called Buried Garden and the subtitle is Lockdown with the Lost Poets about New Park Cemetery. So it's the fourth in a series of seven planned books um, which are documenting the lost and forgotten poets of London. And I set myself a challenge seven years ago that I could find a great, forgotten, overlooked, poetic voice beneath the ground that we walk above in London and I could reclaim the work, write about it and, and bring it back to an audience and that, that's what I'm, I'm doing in this series. So the series, that's it. So you've done four already, so yeah, what yeah. have they been about? So, so West Norwood, Nunhead and Tower Hamlet Cemetery, the south of London and this book, Berry Garden about Abney Park, completes the east slash northeast. And then to complete the project, I'm going to move across London to the west, and I'm going to finish at Highgate to the very north, looking down over our metropolis. Nice. So what are you doing in those cemeteries? Um, so I'm basically walking Mr. around. Yeah, yeah, Mr. McCarb is walking yeah. around in a long coat, um, seeking the advice uh, and the friendship of the people who know the cemetery, very helpful people who know the grounds and know the history, and often know who's buried there. And I'm doing a lot of my own research and I'm basically mapping out the dead poets that are beneath the earth in that particular space. And from there, I can research their life story, hopefully. And uh, most importantly, I can find some of their uh, published work from the late 18th, mostly the 19th or early 20th century. And I can talk about why it's been forgotten and overlooked, whether it should be forgotten and overlooked, and overlooked and you know whether they've been overlooked because they were a woman writing in a male world in the Victorian times or they were a black writer writing against a uh, prejudiced headwind um, or they had a disability or whatever it might be so all these um, social factors come into the reasons why a poet may not be given a proper hearing in their own lifetime. I mean Blake he's the classic graveyard that I used to stalk down in Shoreditch. We're sitting on a bench in sure. round the back because we met we met somewhere very noisy and it was very noisy. So we're sitting on a bench, right? In in Islington, next to the Esterick collection. And I'm I'm feeling Blake down the road. Who are you feeling? Uh, well Blake is a leading life for me. Um, we first met of course at a Blake exhibition. That you curated. Which I curated and in this series of books, you know, Blake is a guy for me always because he's the ultimate overlooked poet, isn't he? Um, he's the poet who, you know, sold less than 30 copies of Songs of Innocence and Experience in his lifetime and now is seen as the de facto poet laureate of London and is set on the English syllabus and Tate have just put a huge show on. But, you know, he saw barely a penny from his poetry in his own life. So, you know, it, we know it can happen. We know overlooked poets can be reclaimed after the death. Um, so where there's one Blake, there may be many. Do you think that there's a point in time at the moment when there's so many people producing that stuff's getting lost? 
currently? I mean, you're a curator at a library, right? So you work yeah. at the poetry, National Poetry yeah, Library, yeah. so you're constantly curating what is visible yeah. in some ways. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you have stuff that's just being sent in? How do you find stuff? I mean, it, I, mean I always find it interesting, particularly in music, where people could be putting albums out and they just might not get heard. I think yeah. there's a real possibility of that. Do you think yeah. it's the same with yeah. poetry? Yeah. yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's so much being produced through so many different platforms now um, that it brings great possibilities. You know, we, we see poets on Instagram, be, you know, making millions of pounds and becoming world famous. Um, but, you know, so many poets want to imitate that success. So how do you cut through? How do you get heard in that environment? Um, at the library, you know, digital is an important part of what we do, but so too is print and the creation of digital has led to the creation of more print and people expect their books to be more beautiful, to be better to hold and more nicely printed and better graphics and all the rest of it. Um, you know, so I think a poet's way forward now is actually taken from Blake, which is you work across many mediums and you cross-pollinate, and you don't um, believe or think that one way of making poetry will be the gateway through to success, you know. You've got to be multi-dimensional multi as a poet these days, as Blake was. Yeah, I mean, the creative industries, they kind of, they may be siloed stuff in, in some senses that kind of reinforces. In, in Ambit, we have poems, stories, and art. And I think some of the strongest work in Ambit in our archive is when we have cross-pollinated In the Invisible Years by Ballard, which was kind of Ron Samford and Martin Bax and, and J.G. Ballard collaborating to form something that was a cut-up that helped inform the, you know, a lot of crash, a lot of different work from Ballard. So, yeah, I guess... Um, I guess you're totally correct with that, yeah. And that, and that is the, the aim, you know, of, um, of, the, of the series really is digital is also cre creating a new life for dead poets. Um, you know, the poets I'm finding in Abney Park, they had books, had books in the British Library, but now they've been digitised, they're available digitally online. So I could effectively write this book in lockdown, which would not have been possible five years ago. Um, and the, on the back of that, lots of publishers are coming along and they're doing digital facsimile editions of poets. So I can order an unknown dead poet's book online and have it delivered next day. You know, this is, this is a, new, <laughs> a new way. I mean, in music, we're seeing a long tail with Tina Turner getting signed by Universal, for example, for a huge mm. amount recently, like record amounts of money. And it's almost as though the long-term preservation of poetry and the arts is kind of in its infancy. Music leads that generally, and music does often lead, and pornography generally lead the mm. arts, right? And then mm. the kind of... Time with Amber there, of course. <laughs> yeah, totally spot on there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, yeah, that's interesting that, yeah, that's maybe kind of you might not sell because I think the average sale of a book is 200 of a poetry yeah edition. it sounds about right yeah. yeah yeah never mind who the publisher is yeah 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're with a larger distributor, you can probably get a bigger throw. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, Penguin, for example, and uh, Faber, you know, the distribution network is so huge that it will automatically, um, you know, infiltrate the, the bookshops and, um, you know, various, uh, various other outlets. But, you know, it's not uh, a key to success. I mean, the former prize was announced on Sunday and um, it was actually a pen and the margins author who, who won the prize, you know, and that's um, that's not coming from a major publisher, um, major in terms of imagination and creativity, pen and the margins, but they don't have that distribution, but can still win the major prizes, you know, so th this is the time we live in where it does feel like we're breaking through the surface a little bit of the claws of um, of of the trade and the the corporate capitalist giants that have dominated for so long. Yeah, we were talking about just before we started recording. We were talking about that kind of metaphysical idea of data and kind of the psychogeography of digital, so that you're creating something infinite with creativity, I guess, and a legacy through doing digital. But it's just whether or not artists should have to be managing that themselves and then kind of what does rise through the hegemony. That's always my problem with it. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that there will be great writers that appear later. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's always been the way and will continue to be the way, you know, perhaps more so when there's so many people writing and the mantra from the Arts Council, for example, is let's create, you know, it's it's pushing everyone to write. In fact, there was an event at South Bank last week with Grayson Perry and he, he got the audience to, um, to do a, a quiz live and uh, asked them all, like, who creates in the audience and 90% of the audience said they do, um, you know. So the prosumer, I think they're yeah, called in yeah, Apple Land. Yeah, 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 that's that's a good, good funky title for it, you know. So that means you know, publishers, uh, distributors, you know, they, they will often perhaps go for what they think sells over what is truly great. But um, time can be a great balancer, you know. Uh, if the work's out there. Um, and uh, just enough, just enough, you know, just enough people know about it. It can begin to grow over time, and that's, you know, again, what I'm trying to do with this series is to say, look, you know, th these writers didn't get a fair crack in their life. Uh, maybe good reasons for that, but let's look at the work afresh. What I love that you do in the series is you interpolate with Marky Smith, with that you walk on stage the other night at the South Bank Centre wearing a New Order <laughs> t-shirt, you know, Thanks so you clearly, that. <laughs> I, I noticed that, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you kind of, you definitely have a music, a musical knowledge, um, yeah. yeah, you were saying that you may have done a few drumming sessions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we, we just met him in the Hope and Anchor and, um, you know, hazy memories of playing there as a standing drummer for my brother's band when we moved to London in 2001, um, nearly 20 years ago. And um, yeah, you know, just being in the same venues that bands like The Clash have played, you know, the whole like... The Stranglers you know, have been the in there, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, for me, you know, just collapsing that distinction between 
what are supposed to be high art forms and what are supposed to be like you know street art. Forms. I mean lyricism, really. So that was what I was talking about. You yeah, know, you've yeah. got this theme of buried gardens. I don't know if you could talk about that a lot, but yeah. So yeah. like in between in, um, the walking, the psychogeographic elements of the book, where I'm, you know, finding the poets' graves and I'm talking about their poetry. Um, I've got these dreamt fictions. So they, many of them came out of dreams that I had in lockdown. Are very vivid dreams. Um, and the whole, what brings them together is the whole construct is around there being a portal in North East London um, that you can walk through into this transient ephemeral garden. And it comes from a short story by Arthur Macken, who was a Gothic writer from the late Victorian period. And he wrote this story called N, in which three friends discussed the possibility of this transient portal garden existing in, what year was that, in Sorry, what year so was that? so he wrote this story um in the 1890s um and i began to believe when i when i was walking around Abney park that Abney park is that garden landscape because you know it's on the edge of stoke newington high street you know it's one of the busiest roads in, in london and not everyone wants to walk through the gates, you know, they miss the portal, but many people don't. And you can walk through and you can collapse time. You can be in dialogue with people who died many centuries before. Um, you can get a sense of future London in that space as well, because it's off the beaten track and very, very strange things happen and have happened in Abney Park Cemetery. So these fictions are bringing Marky Smith, who you mentioned, uh, Robert Smith from The Cure, you know, I started to believe that actually these visionary artists have seen the Berry Garden. Maybe they just couldn't talk about it or maybe they did talk about it, but just not in a direct way. So what do you see as the Berry Garden? What do you see it as? Yeah, well... Is it an occult thing? Is it like... Um... It, it's partly an occult thing. I mean, for sure, I'm interested in all that. Um, you know, the, it, it's the Berry Garden of London, you know, it's the weird space that is easily missed. You know, it's the 31 acres that um, you cut through on your way to work and maybe don't really think about, or you don't go in there because you're scared of graveyards. But, you know, the strangest things happen in Abney Park Cemetery, and anyone who knows the cemetery will, will, will tell you that. And writing this book uncovered, you know, stories about, you know, premature burial you know, a, a baby that was buried, um, believed to be dead and cried as the as the coffin was lowered, um, documented in, in the news. Um, and it sounds like something out of a, out of a Hammer House of Horror film, but, it, you know, it happened in that space. Um, there was a very, very, very strange um, burial of a young woman who died moving a piece of furniture at home. Um, and she tried to lift this, this chest of drawers. She was, recently married it fell on her and killed her um so she was buried in Abney park but her father very strangely decided to bury her in a wedding dress um so she was laid out for a, a, a funeral as if she was about to be married uh, married as she had been a few weeks before um and not only that they got the coffin made out of the same wood as the furniture that killed her so, you know, there's some weird, very weird pagan um, uh, ritual behind this, you know, that somehow the contact with the, the same wood and the contact with the wedding dress would 
but maybe open a portal through to you know through to the kind of afterlife that she deserved. Um, so you know all these kind of weird, strange things happen, and and it's surrounded by the mythology of the area. You know Edgar Allan Poe is Stoke Newington's unofficial poet laureate. You know he lived there as a boy. He went to school in, in Stoke Newington which is... Um, I never knew that. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he was there for a, a number of years. And then his famous story, William Wilson, which is probably the fair, one of the first stories about doubles, you know, doppelgangers. Um, it's about, you know, a man who's pursued by his own double, who follows him through Europe, he can't shake off this double. And it all begins in Stoke Newington with this description of the garden landscape, of the very garden, of the cemetery as an arboretum, and, a, you know, uh, one moment a beautiful thing, but it can quickly switch to a place of, of terror and a, a place of the weird. Mm. And this is the time of year for it, of course, when we break down the veil between the living and the dead. And... Do you think that's what it is? I guess when we're going in from one, one light season to another. Yeah. Is that the tradition of the pagan festival? I'm guessing. I don't know. I don't know what year the hour switch happened. I don't yeah. know when that was invented. Yeah. The farmers. I'm not sure when that yeah, was. Yeah, I mean, shadow and light plays into it. I mean, I guess the original pagan festival goes right back to the Celts, this, the, the, the festival of Samhain, um, which, you know, mirrors many, many other rituals throughout the world around the dead. You know, and the, probably the most famous example now, of course, is the Mexican Day of the Dead, which, you know, occurs just after our Halloween. So, you know, as, as peoples, we have this, this need to acknowledge. Embrace the dead. Do you yeah. think most poets are existentially searching and concerned about death? For sure. I mean, I, I, think, um, I think poems are ghosts, you know, many poets ghosts you know um the, in the realm of hauntology if you like you know we're kind of um uh, fascinated by unrealized futures you know all the things that didn't happen in our lives as, as poets become the material and you know it's energy for sure you know what, what other people might see as uh, as, as dead or liminal and, uh, and easy easy to ignore is actually energy and that's where so many poems come out of. And do you think that's the mark of good poetry? That's, a, that's one way of looking at it for sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, poems really should show you something that you maybe haven't dealt with face on, um, that brings something from the periphery into the, into the foreground. Um, and say something perhaps that like most people wouldn't dream of saying or that we all think but most people would keep to themselves poets reveling like saying it getting it out and um, starting the conversation around that so all these weird kind of energies are are the center of poetry you know it's, it's what it, it lives and breathes for so in relation to the occult thank you that was a brilliant spiel the um <laughs> the thing about the occult and poetry i don't know if you have much knowledge of that and if you'd like to talk about that a little oh, of the occult yeah of the occult and poetry and alistair crowley and yeah. kind of you know our our understanding of i mean i, I see it as a 
you know, an old religion in many ways, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. And that need to own that energy, right? Yeah. And and empower oneself yeah. through that energy. Yeah. yeah. In a performance, in a poem, in a an um a church of Thelma, whatever it is, you yeah. know, kind of in a yeah. it, to channel the light or the darkness. Yeah. But I mean, I think it was actually Mark Radcliffe who said to me, you know, to believe in the devil, you've got to believe in God. Yeah. Which I always yeah. love. Yeah, yeah, I think Nick Cave loves that kind of strain, doesn't he? You know, the the, uh, the great struggle is always within us, and it's happening every day. Um, and, and poetry wrestles with that for sure. Um, you know, it is maybe a kind of a cult. In a sense, an experience. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. sorry, carry on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, kind of, it's just that you know the manifestation of kind of it. It must. It's this idea of being good, being bad. It's a constant rock and roll punk obsession, which mm. the best poets are. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. 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 You know, and it, poetry is the medium, isn't it? Mm. I guess if that's the if that's the human condition, the struggle between the good, good and good and the bad, you know, the the, the evil within us, um, and the light, then poetry is is that 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 um, Ouija board, if you like, is the place to play it out. It's a place to to connect where where that evil comes from. You know, people have different views on that. Mm. Um, is it coming from inside? Is it coming from some other mm. place beyond us? Mm. Um, and of course, you know, Ouija boards are basically alphabets laid out on a page. You know, mm. and um, you know, there's poets who've experimented with um, with that particular format as a way of of writing poems. You know. Um, some poets like Alice Notley, the amazing American poet living in Paris, you know, she she just speaks to the dead and, and, and thrashes it out on the page and lets the voices speak through her because she hears voices and she believes her poetry is the vehicle by which those voices can be heard. Um, and I, I believe that as well, you know, these books that I'm writing about the, the cemeteries are an attempt to channel those voices. So, you know, my writing becomes a vehicle for for those voices, those stilled voices, to be animated, the silent to be heard again. Yeah, it reads like that, in a way. It's quite abstract, but it still flows really well, the book, but there are abstract sort of experimental pieces in it mm. too, right? Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. It's again, it's about mixing it up. For me, you know, it's like I can't um, categorise what these books want to be. But I like that, you know, I like work that doesn't aim to be kind of like easily dewied, <laughs> to put it in librarian terms, you know, easily labelled and put on the shelf, you know, um, because life's not like that, is it? Mm. You know, and neither's death. Mm. And now we're back in Soho Radio. Hello, welcome back. We're here with Sarah Gibbons, the second prize winner of the poems competition for the annual ambit competitions 2021 taking the theme of metamorphosis i'm also joined by the author winners so we have georgina parfit in first place winning 500 pounds luke jackson of sites of horror in second winning 250 and ed hoffman winning a hundred pounds. So 
<laughs> yeah. However, I mean, I don't know if you've got stuff that you'd like to ask writers mm -hmm. and authors to poets and kind of, I mean, my own practice, I, I cross over and yeah. I, I use uh -huh. poetry to expand uh -huh. on ideas and I actually used it to get away from copywriting and journalism. So it allowed me mm -hmm. the space to experiment more and then yeah. I'd bring uh -huh. that back into fiction. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, what I'd like to ask is where where people generally start i always find that really interesting question um when is it with an idea is it with a form is it with a structure and that's something i always find quite interesting should we do this from the top george gina should we ask you that to yeah. begin with yeah that's a great question um i think i start generally with um some mixture of a feeling and an image mm -hmm. so I think um and it's nice to talk to a poet always because I think the people that I read most often are poets and um or or people who write novels and short stories but but um whose work has something about something of poetry in it mm -hmm. um and I think what I always love to find is some kind of um, way that a feeling is made very physical so that yeah. it you know is given texture and edges uh -huh. and space and you can play with it and pick it up and and I think yeah that's how I that's how I'm thinking all the time is um I'm attaching to things and objects and animals and um physical things um as a way of trying to describe something abstract and then Luke, I mean, you've spoken a little bit about where you began, but yeah, tell us. Oh, yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, oh, yeah, I think with mine, like, um, it really kind of begins like I'm um, really this this uh, kind of inversion in a way of um, uh, philosophy into pop culture and then pop culture into philosophy. But is this, this kind of orbits around like the, the kind of the activating of the practice so to, to then start the writing it, it very much kind of like works on this 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 inversion of the two and 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 through that so obviously it's it, uh, the kind of residualness of of what can then kind of be absorbed sponge-like is it, it really comes from as you can may probably tell from the text itself it's coming from so many different kind of uh, trigger points so you know it, it really it, it, it does flow from through a, 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 a kind of a, a method of, I suppose, poetry, prose, and but, but within this sort of scrambled method of this sort of inversion of 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 of, um, of a process of a, kind of like a reading and, uh, and then and then drifting online <laughs> in a way. <laughs> <laughs> the drift, the poet's drift, yeah. Mm. The poet's and drift then, um, as an author, great, yeah. Uh, so, so like one of the triggers for this was uh, a, a text that Mark Fisher wrote, to, uh, where he talked about the, the secret sadness of the 21st century in relation to like Kanye and, and this sort of stuff. But, but, they're, but they're just things that kind of percolate in your minds, sort of thing, before mm -hmm. you then um, start to put like a, a pen to paper in a way. But it really is this 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 way that. Uh, practice like create uh, poetry whatever it is as, as the means it can bridge this this sense of a dialogue between like the the, the internal and then 
and then how that can be kind of like um, uh, translated onto the page or brilliant or, or, yeah. yeah great and then Edward Hoffman sorry to cut you down we've got uh, Yashe who's just arrived and Laurie Ogden's just coming into the studio so I want to speed it up because we've also got Lucy Gray who is our amazing first prize winner of art we've also got Yashe uh Thapa Magar, if I got that in the right order this time, yeah, good. Uh, so, and we've got Nina Carter, who I'm going to play in a short bit from later. But I just want to make sure that everybody's everybody's happy here. So, Edward, could you just kind of ask answer Sarah Gibbons' prize-winning question? I'll give a much uh, shorter, uh, less academic answer. Uh, I'd say in the shower, generally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's where most uh, ideas stem from, um, and I think I need someone to invent me a waterproof pen and notepad. Uh, it'd be really useful because that's generally where everything starts. That's, um, that's endorphins, you know. You get like, uh, probably yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's something about like running and getting in the shower. It yeah. gives you a certain amount of endorphins mm-hmm. that yeah. kind of work. I know another writer that that works for. Yeah. My kids are sort of banging on the door. Yeah, the sense of freedom. It's your room without a view, that, isn't it? All yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I got quite a good view from the shower, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Great. OK, so brilliant. So what I'm going to do now is introduce Yeshe. Yeshe, your practice and what you wrote in your illustration, in your, about your piece that we've actually published quite a few pages of, uh, in in Ambit 245 because it documents a really, really new practice for me that's about mark making as a sensory explanation and translation it, within itself. And it's for me, it was quite a feminine practice. And I just found it really, really inspiring. I mean, I, I hadn't ever looked at mark making in that sense before, I don't think. And you hanging... I mean, you get on the trapeze virtually and kind of have uh, have ink pots coming out of your toes and stuff. And now you're practicing uh, uh, doing metal and jewellery yeah. at the Royal Academy. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Yeah. What an inspirational bit of work, really. Thank you. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, second prize. Yeah. Money, too. Very yeah. happy, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cool. So tell us a bit. Um, yeah, so that book metamorphosis i actually made an interpretation of uh franz kafka's uh text metamorphosis and um it was my final project that i did um for my ba course at kingston university of um in illustration animation um and with the project i kind of wanted to push the boundaries of illustration and understand where i could take storytelling um but also also in the way that you're saying being really feminine and very in tune with my body and um using movement and um like sculptural body adornment in order to um play around and and narrate uh loss of power identity yeah and all that i mean it starts the opening piece has a kind of michelangelo style template with twigs coming out as wings yeah. doesn't it that's the first image yeah yeah it, yeah so the whole project was it was very much about me having an extension to my body and kind of adding almost like prosthetics to to the to my form in order to explore concepts and ideas um and yeah and kind of turning into or well, metamorphosizing into um, another being in order to un- understand and empathize the character 
um, Gregor Samsa in Franz Kafka's text. Congratulations. I just hope everybody sees it who's listening because it's amazing and it's... Thank uh, you. It's, it's one of those pieces that uh, taught me a lot. You know, I work with uh, Dr. Marie Fauchon as the illustration editor on, on Amber, and she's taught me a lot about visual communications and understanding that's, that's way greater than my own kind of punk graphic <laughs> practice, you know. So, yeah, I just loved kind of getting the conceptual understanding of, of what you're doing. And, and, and those jewellery pieces, they're kind of like... I mean, I love Sean Lean, you know, as kind of who worked with Alexander McQueen as a jewellery designer and I kind of love how that articulates a lot of the kind of twigs and the kind of the the brutalness of the countryside and the pastoral right Mm -hmm. and I love kind of yours just I mean you're I cannot wait to see what you're going to create at the Royal Academy (laughs) it's really exciting um yeah I mean the, the the sense was keeping things very organic um and working with natural materials and and seeing what I can do with things around me and what I could uh push with I don't know it was like a marry like a marriage of nature with my body as well as like nature as in twigs and plants and materials like that um and also like space and like how our body interacts with the space that we put in it like I don't know if you saw one of the pages where I'm like swinging on yeah. a swing and yeah it's like incorporating movement with the idea of control and yeah yeah i mean i i, I loved I, I loved it as a as as just a, a an expression mm-hmm. you know it is it's it's such an expression and i hadn't i hadn't understood something like that before so tell us what sort of work you're working on right now um so um at the royal college of art i at the moment i'm working on a project to do with materials um and understanding us as humans and our hierarchy of the material world um and yeah i've kind of taken on the same um technique into looking at movement and performance kind of thing um i've recently just made um a clay a clay necklace that is about how humans um put value in items um with emotion um so like for example this cup it's just a cup but it might be special to me because i've come on to this podcast it's like that psychogeography thing that yeah. we're talking about there's a similar sort of relevance isn't yeah it, to exactly value. and i mean i saw a fossil for sale the other day in lime regis and it cost two pounds fifty and it was 15 million pounds old i mean 15 million pounds 15, yeah. <laughs> 15 million years old it was just like yeah totally yeah. i mean yeah, yeah. and it's like there are things that humans put value towards certain objects and stuff like that. Um, and I was looking at um, the idea that emotion stays, but material can go. And it's the idea that, because um, I hadn't fired the clay or anything because it was air dry, I stand in the shower and let the water kind of mould it and break, let it break down and it falls. So it's like the idea of, um, again, prosthetics extending our body and having the subject slash the wearer being stationary or intact and having the objects that extend us move and have um, 
like its own character almost. Yeah, no wonder it appealed to Michael Salud then because his piece Red Earth that we publish an exclusive extract of in this ambit is exploring kind of glitch and identity mm-hmm. and everything through through his art really that show showing if you're in Berlin and listening it's showing in Berlin mm-hmm. right now so you can have a look at have a look at that I don't know we are kind of a getting a little towards the end of the show so I'd like to introduce our amazing winner of art who Michael Sally selected and he I'm gonna try and uh, find the bit to to read that uh, he said about um, I mean, basically, the art in Ambit 245, you can see all the commended winners' work inside the pages because we've published all the commended works for poets, stories, and poems for the first time in this Ambit. And it's kind of like bumper 80-page edition. But you can see how varied the approaches are. So there's a piece by Sarah Nash that's about her care worker's uniform, which she customised after leaving the government's reablement programme that was like a temp agency type situation and uh, it's a great piece there's pieces like that and then there's Neil Ann Buller's two-tone symmetry prints that have sort of a tint of Victoriana and modernity and there's such a rich variety of creations from painting that smells of afro roots to Essie Syed's kind of worm hearts that kind of articulates an internal an internal thing that's going on with her so yeah Stephen Barrett's created a real artwork in itself from all of these works as well I think so Right, so Yeshe, um, Yeshe, thank you very, very much for Thapar, Yeshe Thapa Maga, thank you very much for coming and talking today and I wish you the best in all your future work. It looks like it's really exciting to me. So, but Lucy Gray, um, she's, I'm going to read what the judge, Michael Salu, said he said i primarily looked for work that saw the theme as a frame so that's the theme of metamorphosis um within which might take the freedom both a blessing and a curse at times to a place that will encourage both the artist and the audience to be able to respond to the work over time and i saw this work that did attempt this dialogue and some were more effective than others in in this regard but he absolutely adores Lucy Gray's work and and he felt that the narrative element of it was really really strong which is kind of within his own practice I guess that's what resonated with him so so Lucy's uh Lucy's on the line now speaking from San Francisco so shall we say hi Lucy hello and I I just want to say that I was uh, not aware of Michael Sellers' work before, but now I am enthralled, of course, because we are interested, I, if I may presume, in the same things and in going about it with narrative and, and visuals in was new to me. I, I've been a photographer, I've been a writer, I've never really put them together in fiction before. So this was a crossover project and I felt I really found my voice. I'm I'm not as young as the other people who uh, are your winners. And um, it's taken me kind of a long time to get here. And I was pretty thrilled, but the response I got from people <laughs> was, was not quite what yours was. So I was thrilled to have somebody who understood what I was doing and there you go. I thought they were self-portraits. 
I wasn't expecting you <laughs> to look like this. I've oh my God. She's so beautiful. Are you kidding? No. <laughs> ah, no. You're doing all right with all your books behind you, Dad. I can see I'm soon. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Yeah. 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 So, so. So tell us, you've been published widely as a photographer anyway, right? So I was kind of really yeah. like, oh, wow, we've got some high, high kudos, high caliber entries coming in here. And yeah, your stuff. You've, so tell us about your work as a writer and photographer and all the rest of it. So I started as a writer and um, I felt I, I felt I had to keep writing and that would that somehow it would all work out. And after a while, I decided I had writer's block for 10 years. So I just, I was writing, but not very much and not very well. So I quit that and became a photographer. And uh, I was a photographer. I've been a photographer for, you know, I don't know, 15 years. And then I started putting them together. And um, I put them together in various ways. First, I was asked to do a uh, an, an interpretation of uh, the Day of the Locust, which is a, so I did a photographic, you know, thing as if I was, uh, as if they were stills from a movie and um, that was made of the book or that I had made of the book. And um, so first I did that and I had been working for 15 years on a project I thought would be done in two, which was about prima ballerinas who are mothers. So I went to the hospital and photographed them having babies. And then I photographed them uh, back on stage and um, watched their kids grow up, as it turned out, <laughs> and you know, photographed them growing up. So um, that was another book. I've worked on so many different projects. I, I worked with Tilda Swinton for a couple of years, just photographing her and then projected those on City Hall. One of the iterations of that, there, you know, everything gets different placements. Um, and I used to be a person who sort of had a direction for what I was doing. And I'd say, OK, this is where it's going to go. And that dictated somewhat what I did. That had, was part of the influence. This time, it was the pandemic. I had um, I, I just started playing in a different way with with what I've done. And I, I really do think this is my best work. <laughs> I, th oh. I think I've moved in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, because it intertwines story and photographs. So tell us a bit about what the story is, just so that listeners can see it. The story is about a couple who once had a relationship and they both in different ways are struggling with mental health issues. And they get back together for a little while to sort of try and help each other. And then they separate again, inevitably. Yeah. It's an, it's an internal and external story. The reason it's metamorphosis works with this and the reason I thought I would um, send it into this is because it is very much there's a line in it that uh, the the man says um, that about Los Angeles because it's very it's called being blue, and it's about being depressed and it's about the sky in Los Angeles, and he says um, that maybe Los Angeles did this to us, to, you know, got us in this terrible state um, because the sky. The radio the ambition are so distant. They're hard to get a relationship to, to any of those, to feel 
um, agency with any of those things or feel feel those things, I guess is really more it. Yeah. Feelings, it's very much a story about feelings and the difficulty in having them. Hmm. Yeah, they, you can definitely feel the boundaries on it from looking at the the images, I guess. Yeah. Um, and what are you working on now? Yeah, it's definitely about boundaries in and out of the conscious yeah. a relationship between the external when they talk and the internal when the um, when their images, particularly of Los Angeles. I mean, did you uh, feel like I mean, in the layout, we decided to yeah. kind of take the text and just throw that on and change the way that you'd laid out. I just wanted to ask you if you were cool with that, really, and kind of how that happened. Or, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have this idea that I could the way I want to present this in in a physical sense, apart from in a in a situation like yours, I would love to put these things on board, each panel on a board, put the board on wheels and have people play around with the interaction of the story and let them remake it into any way they want. So I'm so fine with, you know, changing what what panel goes with what yeah, panel. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of 32 panels or something for it. And we yeah. wanted, <laughs> you know, what I wanted to do was uh, kind of create a zine within a zine, really, for pop. But then I asked the printer how much that would cost and it became <laughs> totally untenable. Yeah. So, right, right. so instead we've used different paper types within the magazine. So yours is going to feel the insert is going to feel a lot different. So I think I, I'm hoping when we get the dummies back that it's going to kind of feel feel like that too. Yeah. That's exciting. So the, the other thing I wanted to say is you chose, what, what I found really interesting was what you chose to make a full page. You chose an image of Los Angeles and an image of the male character. And that that's just that that makes, that says something about what you think the story is about. And that's Totally great. I just thought, thought that was, I thought it was interesting what you chose. Wow. Wow. I'll, I'll go and find an, an analysis. If there's any ana Freudian analysts listening and want to give me some therapy, <laughs> happy to promote you and try and understand what's going on in my editorial selection and biases there. But yeah. No, I think, I think you were looking at what the story is. I, I, I have this issue that people like the man better than the woman, and it really frustrates me. I, I, oh, I wow. read those pictures a thousand times to try to make them equals. I really... And I, oh, I love that as a theme. Oh, wow, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that as a continuing story. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a real dominance and noise, isn't it? So, yeah, fascinating. Um, would you like to speak to Yeshe about anything? Have you been listening to what she's been talking about, about her own practice? Yes. And we've also got Luke still on the line. And we have, um, and we have Georgina Parfit in the studio too. So Georgina Parfit's the winner. Luke's second prize for his experimental thing. Yeshe is the second prize to you for the art with her kind of experimental mark making. And Sarah Gibbons is the poet, second prize poet. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to, uh, um, I guess, where does this fit, where, does what you're doing, I guess you already answered that though, where it fits into your practice. Um, yeah. 
I just wanted to say I really like your work, Lucy. I like yours too. I, I'm sorry, I can't think of a question. Uh, that, that, no, no, it's cool. I mean, I feel like uh, the combination of like text and image, um, the fellowship that you've kind of created on the pages is just so beautiful. There's something really like therapeutic about it, and there's almost like um, I mean, I've only seen what's on the ambit one, so I can't I can't tell you like what I think of the actual the full piece. But there was a beautiful sense of rhythm about it, and I really like that. Um, almost like film-like. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, film has a big part of my practice, but um, and also that is the full piece. Oh, I'm working on someone's like it, well, using images and words, but very different stories. But but that is the full piece you're mm -hmm. seeing. Thirty-two images. It it was very brave of him to, to choose it because it's. <laughs> It's a long piece, so. This may be one of the longest pieces ever published in Amber, actually, but. <laughs> Maybe anywhere. <laughs> yeah, the days, of, the days of getting space and editorial, right? Long, <laughs> may they rain, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But I very much agreed with what Luke said earlier about the, the way we fictionalize, I'm very interested in the way we fictionalize our culture. I thought that was that was that speaks to me what he was saying. Mm. Yeah, great great discussion today. I've really really enjoyed it. And what about Halloween for you? You're in you're in America, right? You're in San Francisco. I am. How I is am. it? How, how does Halloween? Are you excited? Do you celebrate? Are you going to be getting involved? You know, I hate to tell you, but <laughs> I hide. <laughs> Actually, I don't have to hide. Nobody comes to our door. I bought candy before. Nobody comes. If I put it out on the step, it'll be taken. But if I wait for somebody to ring the bell, we don't have any kids here. It's just, it's just not that kind of. There's a tennis club across the street from me. It's like, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's not. If there's an old folks' home two doors down, it's just not a, not a, children. It's a little spooky where we live, I guess, and so. Oh, it keeps them away at Halloween, go. eh? Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> I had kids. I raised them. We used to do Halloween. It was really fun. Yeah. But mm. over it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. It's all right. Luke, how are you celebrating? Uh, I don't have children myself, but I do have a little uh, nephew. So um, that's um, brought back in the sort of the, the, uh, the thing myth-making that you can kind of begin to kind of create with a child again. Uh, Halloween's a very, um, it's a good uh, one in a sense because there's so much kind of like cultural product in a way from film and uh, to, to kind of index into a, this festival as such. Um, it's, in, it's, it's really taken on here in the UK now. It's, uh, I, I, it's um, very, very popular now, isn't it, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a obviously a market. In there. There's a lot I, I have, I do have a question, but it's for Georgina, and and Georgina, I, I'm fascinated about the idea, I guess the metamorphosis idea of you thinking from the point of view of an animal, and how, how like, how did that start? What, where do you, where does that come from? Um, I think so. It's something I've done a lot. I find myself doing it quite a lot, and I, sometimes I. I, I'm not even really thinking about it as being an animal as different from a human character. Um, 
I was thinking more with this, I was thinking about the idea of a death. <laughs> so that's the sort of metamorphosis from being a live <laughs> animal to being something else. Um, and that change taking place and being witness to it as a body or as a mind sort of, and trying to describe it as it's happening. Um, and I just somehow I found that, that going into an animal body felt like that gave me more, um, more ways of doing that or a more innocent um, way of describing what that might be. Does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, fascinating. So it was more about death than it was about um, being an animal. Yeah. So interesting, yeah. Cool. What I'm going to do now, I've just sadly heard from Laurie, who's unable to make it today now. She's kind of unable to be here. So what I thought I'd do is maybe read her first prize poem. Um, what Kim Madanizio said about it is Laurie Ogden peels back layers of time and history to consider the pressure of the past on the present self with compelling images and repetitions that whirl us from opening a matryoshka doll to the moment the speaker finds herself still spitting echoes into the sink, which is a quote from the poem. The powerful ending of this short, gorgeous piece evokes a tentative hope and a stubborn resilience. So this is Laurie Ogden's First prize winning poem, 500 pounds as the winner. What we are given. I opened the matryoshka doll and out came a grandmother, faded, coughing. I opened the grandmother and out came a mother as a sobbing child locked in a cupboard. I opened the mother and out came a money spider which, hopeful, I opened and out came an envelope. That paper cut my finger as I opened the letter. And out came a northwest wind that tore through the house, ripped off the roof. To find me cowering in the bathroom, considering opening me, I opened my mouth. And out came a banshee wail made of echoes circling a cycle, a cyclone. I forced the doll shut, but I'm spitting echoes into the sink. Let it end, let it end, let it end with me. Happy Halloween, kids. Thanks, everyone, <laughs> for joining us today. And I think that's enough of our recording. But yeah, listen back to Ambit Podcasts uh, via Ambit magazine.co.uk join us for the metamorphosis day on november the 10th the links are on the website where we will be celebrating the glorious winners of this year's competition we'll be giving away prizes money poetry discussion beer so yeah come along and join in so you can join us on zoom there's a link on the website or you can come in person which would be great wish you could be here lucy gray for that but one day maybe we'll celebrate in san francisco yay <laughs> all right thanks so much yeshe in the studio sarah in the studio ryland and thanks to giles bidder for producing today very much uh, 
So, yeah, Soho Radio. Find this podcast on all your favourite networks and subscribe to Ambert via ambertmagazine.co.uk. Why don't wild trends do some black games back on the ground? is dead, the bats have left the bell tower, the victims have been left red velvet lines, the black box, the loose is dead. Yeah.